Grab your Bibles with me and turn to the New Testament pastoral epistle named Titus. Church, what a joy it is that we have in our possession God's written word that the Lord provides us this opportunity to gather on a Sunday to prioritize this time in our week, all the things calling for our attention, all the things calling for our thoughts and our priorities, that we who belong to God love God. We love his word. We love his people. And we want to be together. We want to share this time that, that the Lord would move in us. And so I just pray that you, you're hungry today. You come hungry. You come expecting that God's word would be clear and it would it would edify us, it would embolden us, it would um, enlighten us and, and really stir us with worship for him. That we'd finish this morning truly singing out together, Jesus is better than anything else. And making war with the ways our flesh wants to, wants to make these things difficult, wants to turn us away from what honors the Lord. Um, that we really would, church, be the pure in the power of the Lord, looking to do what is pure and, and not be part of the defiled, looking to do what serves ourselves or the enemies against God. Um, today, we finish chapter 1 of Titus as we dive into verse 15 and 16 together in a sermon that I've titled, The Pure and the Defiled. Uh, look with me at this passage and then we'll jump in. Titus 1, 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit, for any good work. What is pure? What is, it, it is what is righteous, what is holy, without blemish. It is what is perfect. There's a lot of things that we might deem as pure, but nothing is truly or fully pure, holy, righteous than God. Praise be his holy name. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 5. How is God pure? God is pure in that he is set apart from all that is evil and defective and impure. He's absolutely free from any evil, any deficiency at all. Isaiah 40, 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? The holiness of God, church, is the most fundamental reality of all. It refers to the reality that God is, is utterly unique and in a class by himself. Nothing and no one compares with him. 
God is the highest purity. He is like no other. There is no other creator. There is no other sustainer. There is no other final measure of good and evil. This is the way Hannah talked about God in 1 Samuel 2.2. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Oh, how worthy he is to be praised. He's unequaled, unrivaled. He's absolute and perfect in his being. He's without beginning, without end. He's without blemish. Why should you totally trust him? Because there's nothing in him not to trust. There's nothing in him that should give you doubts. There's no curve. There's no mist. There's nothing short. It is an essential understanding that God is holy. His nature is holy. He is infinitely and perfectly pure. Not only is God pure, holy, righteous, he calls all human beings to meet his holy standard. 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Matthew 5.48, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This seems so absolutely and utterly out of reach for us, though. Why? Because mankind, our race, is so far from perfect in and of ourselves. Not only are we conceived in sin, Scripture tells us, we fight our flesh of sin every day. Not, not one day have you and I done perfect. Not once. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. This is a declaration of what is known as mankind's original sin. Original sin is the sinful tendencies, desires, dispositions in our hearts with which we are born. Therefore, original sin is something inherent in us. It is a morally ruined character. King David lamented the reality of our condition of our fallen human nature in Psalm 51.5. He says, Surely... I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Not only are we conceived in sin, but we go on to become really good at sinning in our lifetime, don't we? What does this mean about mankind? Paul said it most famously, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
perfection of God, standard of God. We are the opposite of pure in our sin. God is pure. Mankind is selfish, sinful, wicked. So then, begs to answer the question, who's Paul talking about then here in this passage? To the pure, all things are pure. Who is this reference to? Who is Paul referring to as pure? And the answer is those who have come to see and embrace the utter beauty and transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God to send his only son, Jesus, who is pure and holy, to die in the place of guilty sinners so that in Jesus alone, those guilty sinners can be made pure. Listen, Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, had not graduated from being a sinner, still a really good sinner, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to how Paul speaks of this in the gospel, of the gospel in Romans 1, 16 and 17. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for it is the righteousness of God, man, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So there it is again. Paul is referring to some as the righteous. This is the same people that he's referring to in his letter to Titus as the pure. It is not that they have found some secret recipe to being pure. No, he says the key to this, the righteous shall live by faith. The pure live by faith. God's righteous, his righteousness, his, his purity is, is revealed in the power of the gospel to save us who are unrighteous unto righteousness. Christian, are you stuck in some days lately where your woe is me or your all doom and gloom and have nothing but complaints and whining and whatever. Have you lost sight of the gospel that has made you, who is totally wretched, pure in the sight of the holy God? Because it is the power for living. It is how we go about it. And you can't ever put it down. 
Because if you do, it just gets all screwed up. And you're saying, Pastor, is it really that simple? Yes, it's that simple. You're out of step with the gospel. You've lost sight of the gospel. You, you've lost that thing that the gospel, when you see it clearly, does to you, overwhelms you with humility and tears and praise. And who am I? And so I don't have any complaints. And I'm not pointing to the people over here, over there. Look at what God has done. Know what God has done. The righteous shall live by faith. God, by his grace, gives many of us faith in his son. So we too are called righteous. We're called pure. Some of you are thinking, but I'm so far from pure. Yes, this is true. More than true, more than even you're really able to comprehend. But God. But the gracious, glorious work of God to save stained, wretched, polluted sinners like you and me to call us righteous and pure and holy. Just as our sin was imputed to us from Adam, our federal head, remember original sin, we talked about that a moment ago, our righteousness, Christians, is imputed to us from Christ. For all who trust in him alone by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin. He, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, was pure, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How are we called righteous, called pure? The imputed righteousness of Jesus. Become the righteousness of God in him is the key. Not by your extra effort, by your great batting average. No, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Don't ever lose, in Christ. Jesus came to take on our death. In exchange, he gives us his life. He takes on our sin, gives us his righteousness. We are made pure by the imputation of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Imputation speaks of what we are accredited. It means the righteousness that I'm judged by is not mine. It belongs to Jesus. It's applied to me. The righteous veil, the pure clothing that God sees on me belongs to Jesus. But it's imputed to me. It's credited to me. His righteousness is not infused into me. It's not performed by me. It's imputed. It's laid upon me like a garment so that when the Holy God looks upon me, he sees the perfection, the purity of Christ and calls me his own. 
This is a gracious work of the Holy God who loved us, loved us, loves us, saves us. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God, being rich in mercy, you in your humble moment just might say, I'm so wretched. How? How would the Holy God do this? Why? He's so stinking rich in mercy. Not only mercy, but love. Because of the great love, not little love, not partial love, the great love with which he loved us. Even more, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. If you can hear my voice this morning, and you only still belong to the first Adam, you are desperate for the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and trust your life to Jesus and be saved. For he is the only one who can reconcile you to God. The only way to become pure and forgiven. Only in Christ are we made new, are we forgiven, are we declared righteous in God's eyes. Only in Christ are we called saints. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. Some of you need to do business with this. You've lost sight of the way God sees you. You're having a pity party and you're doing this woe is me and, and you're really you're waking up and you're putting on your old clothes, your old ways of thinking, your old identity, and you're not embracing your new identity in Christ as a saint. Or, on the other side of the coin, you're, you're seeing your brothers and sisters in Christ and you're evaluating them through, the, through this other lens, their old lens. You're missing the fact that God has done a work in them to make them a saint. And you're not considering them precious. Therefore, you're not praying for them. You're not fighting for them. You're not trying to encourage them. The old has passed away. The new has come. For those who trust our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, for those for whom Jesus died and God gives saving faith, our old identity is sinner. Our new identity is saint. Greek word hagios means honorable and holy. Saints in the new covenant are those who have been cleansed and made holy by the perfect blood of Christ. Those who are therefore separated from the world and consecrated to God, the saints in Christ have been set apart for God. These are the pure to whom all things are pure. These are the ones who are no longer defiled, depraved, and unbelieving. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 6, 11 through 14. You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Christian, where are you giving room for sin just to 
just to tear apart the rooms of your mind and your, and, and your body and, and your household and, 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 and your thinking and, and your living. Let it not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Not only are we declared pure, but we're given the Holy Spirit who gives us conviction of sin and a true longing to do what is pure and not what is sinful and wretched. The New Testament speaks in many places about the saved saints operating from a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2.22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Faith, love, and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Church, all those belonging to Christ, all those who have truly died to self and now live in Christ and for Christ. We are the pure. We are the ones to whom all things are pure. The context here is likely related to what Paul just got done speaking. Look, look back in our text, Titus 1, 10 through 14. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. One of, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. There's deceptive people looking to wield influence on the church to try to get the church to commit to Jewish myths and man-made commands. This is similar to what Timothy was facing. Paul spoke to Timothy about these similar people. 1 Timothy 1, 3-5, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is to love, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then later in chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, 2 through 5, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. When a person is pure in heart and mind, then all things are pure. Our inner spiritual purity produces an outer purity. Christian, this is the testimony of Christ at work in us to truly transform us from the inside out. 
understand this doesn't happen apart from Christ. We must abide in him and he in us if we are going to produce true righteousness. So, so the aim of these texts is to really identify those who are claiming to belong to God and really they have another agenda. They're looking to usurp the truth of the word, to have another gospel they're promoting, and, and they're to be identified, they're to be silenced, they're to be rebuked. They don't belong to the Lord. What about the people in between, though, people who struggle, people who, who are caught up in some of these very things? Well, that is a whole different season and sermon and and the the word gives us a lot of ways by which we still hold accountable but we walk with in patience and grace as as we as we look to cling to the vine together and abide sometimes our brothers and sisters sometimes ourselves we're really struggling with our abiding we love God we belong to God but it's we're misfiring We need that help. We need that encouragement of the preaching of the word. We need that prayer from others. We need that support. If we belong to him, we need to abide. We need to remain steadfast. Listen to Jesus' words in John 15, 4-5. Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. What are you trying to do, Christian, lately that's apart from Christ? Do you see why you're maddened by it? Do you see why you're so frustrated at the spinning of your wheels? And why are you stuck here? You need to abide, to climb back into the word, to, as the scriptures speak of, return to your first love. That we who are mature in faith don't ever lose that childlike faith. Oh, one of the worst things you think you can do is to graduate from childlike faith. We're not grafted into Christ. We're not pure. We're not redeemed. We're not saved. We're not sanctified by God. And therefore, we will not be pure in heart and mind. And therefore, we will not produce words and thoughts and actions that are righteous and honoring to God. Those who lack that inner purity of God can only attempt to make themselves look pure on the outside, but it's just a facade. And so look with me at the next part. It says, to the pure, all things are pure. There's a work of God in the pure unto purity, unto what honors God, unto a growing sanctification. That is a maturing in purity. But to the defiled, to the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This is the stark ends of the spectrum. This is one of the most famous verses right here. Titus 1.15 of all the scripture that speaks with great clarity as to what total depravity is. Those who are in their sin, those who are apart from Christ, are totally depraved. 
What is the total depravity according to the Word of Truth Catechism definition? Because of the fall, every part of natural man has been corrupted by sin. His mind, his will, his emotions, his flesh. Sin affects the whole person. We sin because we're sinners by nature. All men are conceived in sin, dead in sin, therefore slaves to sin, deserving of God's wrath. Total depravity does not mean that a man is without a conscience or a sense of right or wrong, nor does it mean that he is as wicked or sinful as he could be. Total depravity recognizes the Bible's teaching that even apart from the good things unregenerate man does are ruined by sin because they are not done out of faith in Jesus for the glory of God. A concise way to think of total depravity is a state of being spiritually dead. It's not just that some parts of us are sinful and other parts are pure. Every part of the person apart from Christ, every part of their being is affected by sin, intellect, emotion, desire, and heart. Our goals, our motives, even our physical bodies. So hear it again, Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving nothing is pure. Nothing. Totally depraved. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now this is not denying that unbelievers can do good in human society in some sense of the word but it is denying that they can do any spiritual good or any good that is righteous in terms of a relationship with God. Apart from the work of Christ in our lives, all unregenerate people are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's Ephesians 4.18. Paul says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8.8. 8. The mind of the flesh is the mind of man apart from the indwelling of the spirit. So natural man has a mindset that does not, it cannot submit to God. Man cannot reform himself. Ephesians 2.1 says that we Christians were all once dead in the trespasses and sins. The point of deadness is that we were incapable of any life with God, of producing anything truly pure. Our hearts were blind and incapable of seeing the glory of God in Christ. Moreover, in terms of bearing fruit, God's kingdom, and doing what pleases him, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not one pure thing. That sounds like what we just read. Nothing is pure. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 7, 17 through 20. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Titus 1.15, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So Paul is encouraging Titus 
to have a good and right discernment to determine those who are belonging to Christ by bearing the fruit of righteousness and purity and those, belonging, and those not belonging to Christ by those who don't bear that fruit. The point is that one's righteousness is not dependent on their outer production, but their inner reality. Cannot change the inside reality without outside, with outside effort. You can't duct tape fruit on a dead tree. That doesn't make it a vibrant living tree. It's a facade. This was Jesus' clarity in Luke eleven thirty nine. 39. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 15, 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Matthew 15, 17 through 20, later in that same passage, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes in the stomach and it is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Not in the spiritual sense. You might get sick from it. Defilement comes from within. Reveals what's inside. Unbelief is a matter of the heart and mind. It's not just a matter of manufactured effort. This is why we are all desperate for God to act upon us. We must be made alive. We must be given a new heart. Praise God that he has done this in many of us. Praise God that he's still doing this in many more. Look with me as Paul continues in verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul reveals that there are people who want to be seen as part of God's family, whether it be just for what they gain themselves or for other deceptive objectives. So these profess to know God, to love God, to trust God. They deny him by their works, their priorities, their practices. Paul is saying to Titus, you must understand that just because they're saying they belong, saying that they're a part of us, saying that they love and know God, doesn't mean they actually do. You have to evaluate their works. right? And, and, and Christian, let's be careful, not just their works in one fine moment. For if that's the case, then we're all in trouble. But, but the real reputation, the real conviction of the heart the unbeliever won't have conviction when you really put him to it. There won't be a desire to be accountable. There won't be a leaning in and a humility. They'll reject it. When tested, they'll find a way to walk.
We must evaluate their works, their convictions, their willingness to be confronted, their willingness to repent. I've said for a long time, in many decades of pastoring, you can be in a really bad spot. And the worst thing you can do, worst, is pull the ripcord and just bail. Is not return phone calls. Is not be willing to sit with elders. Is not be willing to be taken by the hand and helped. That's the worst. That's the scary Don't do that. You might really be struggling, but if you're willing to truly lean in, if you're willing to be known, if you're willing to be helped, that is a great sign. And I've seen God take people from being in a really miserable spot unto some amazing healing and restoration, sanctification. None of that happens if you walk. testimony of that deepest conviction of their works, of what they really hold to, reveals their true spiritual standing. Because while the Christian who belongs to God, loves God, might be really caught up in some stuff where it's all twisted, in the end, when presented with those most challenging crossroads, they'll lean in and say, whoa, whoa, God, God, God's way, God's word, God's help, not me, not mine, not the flesh. There's the Holy Spirit's in me to at least help me see that. James speaks well to this. James 2, 14. What what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If you remember, this is James' driving point all the way through his letter. He's holding to what true saving faith looks like, what faith at work looks like, and then what it doesn't look like. To remind you quickly, James driving this point home, chapter 1 of his letter In verse 3, he says, true saving faith is tested and it produces steadfastness when it's tested. That's back to what I just said. You don't walk. You you find a way to lean in. There's a steadfastness that's there. Verse 6, true saving faith goes to God in prayer with confidence, not with doubt. Verse 9 and 10, true saving faith is humble and boasting God and his accomplishments, not our own. Verse 19, true saving faith is slow to speak. It's quick to hear. It's slow to anger. Verse 22, true saving faith means doing what God's word says and not just hearing it. Verse 26, true saving faith means a a bridled tongue. True saving faith in verse 27 is pure religion. it, It produces a sacrificial ministry and love for the downtrodden and the marginalized. In chapter two, true saving faith shows no partiality to others. And then in chapter 2, 14 through 26, James says, true saving faith is a faith that is at work. It shows itself with one's thoughts, priorities, words, and actions. It's not just a badge on their sleeve. It's not just a slogan that has nothing behind it. There is a lifestyle there. 
James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if some says, someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? James is not speaking in contrast to the fact that we are saved by faith alone and apart from any works we contribute. That point is always needed there. While faith alone is all that is needed for salvation, true faith that is saving is a faith that goes to work and it remains at work. It doesn't quit. We are saved by faith alone, but that faith does not remain alone. It goes to work. If a person's belief shows no real evidence of spiritual new birth, regeneration, then it, then it, which produces the fruit of the Spirit, then what you have is not saving faith. It's a faith that's good for nothing. Four times James makes this point in chapter 2 of this letter. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. Verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. It's important clarity for James. Also for Paul, who's trying to help Titus understand, while there are many around you who are professing to know God, they're denying him by their works. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And, and this is not a one-off. This, is, this happened all throughout the writings of the New Testament, and it's still today. James, Paul, Titus, it, it happened with those who walked with Jesus. John 6, 63 through, through 70, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning those who were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life. And we have believed and now have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Speaking of the betrayer, Judas. See that there are many who claim to believe in Jesus, follow him for a season as disciples, but eventually turned their back on him and walked away from their so-called faith. They didn't, ensure, they didn't show enduring fruit, God-honoring faithfulness. Therefore, the faith they claimed was superficial. It wasn't saving or transforming. It's a serious offense. It's a serious deception, especially those who are looking to influence the church. So Paul gets real serious about those who are looking to wield influence. They are detestable and disobedient people. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These are strong words. Consider them with me for a moment. Detestable, the Greek word Paul uses here for detestable is the same word that Jesus uses when describing the Antichrist. 
Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation, abomination means something morally disgusting, something abhorrent. John said in Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Notice that John's words of linking detestable with false is similar critique that those who are a similar critique of those who are on the island of Crete, who are, as we see in the prior text, insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, those of the circumcision party. They were teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, devoted to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. These are people who clearly and universally don't have the fruit of the Spirit. These are not Christians who have areas of their life where they're struggling. See the difference. It's important to not lose context. What is detestable is their intentional deception. They're aiming to get to God's people with deception, with false teaching that, that, and the misleading that comes with it. It is the false testimony of claiming to be good with God and then to lack the righteousness and pure works that come with that faith in God. Paul also says that they're disobedient. To say you trust the Lord, but then you disobey him, is to be a hypocrite. Again, understand this is not a one-time thing. All of us who are saved will be disobedient at some point. And sadly, and really, at a whole number of points. But this is highlighting an ongoing testimony and practice of disobedience, a disposition of disobedience, an arrogance that comes with disobedience. It's not those who say, I know that's what the word calls me to, and I'm wrestling, pray for me, help me. It's those who say, I know that's what the word says, but forget it, scratch it, do my own thing. Don't need to trust it, not going to do it. This is a problem because to know God, to truly know him, is to honor him. He who is worthy of our obedience. When you're blatantly saying, scrap it, I'm not going to obey him, the question is, do you really know him? Is God practice of disobedience is a chief marker of being dead in sin. Paul refers to these as sons of disobedience in Ephesians 2.2. Do you remember how John spoke of this in his letters? 1 John 2, 3-4, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. True faith in Christ means we will be doers of the word and not hearers only. It, it moves. The Holy Spirit's motivating. It's stirring. 
It's bringing in joy to obey. Those who project faith but then live out of their own self-righteousness or sin are liars and disobedient. The whole thing's a facade. We are simply not trusting God if we do not obey God. The byproduct of true love for God is devotion to him. And so, beloved, I would say you can and should test this right now in your own life. Don't, don't grab that with me this morning in just a, a casual passing by kind of way. Really, really allow the Spirit to do work in you today. What are areas whereby you simply are not doing what God has made clear you should do? Or you're doing what God has clearly forbidden you should not do. If you trust God, you won't shelve that conviction. You will look to obey him. And I'm just saying, in whatever way, true Christians, you've found a way to continue to find that thing to the shelf and move on. Don't do it again today. Let today be the day you drag it by the hair into the light and go to work. And bring in brothers and sisters and take it before the Lord in prayer. And really aim to honor the Lord in that. Why are you so charged and quick to do this and no longer making excuses or lazy? Because you know God. Because you trust God. Because you belong to God. Therefore, you desire to obey God. Therefore, you're going to do what it takes to actually obey God. When God regenerates our heart, he, he, our longings change, our and, and thankfully, more so increasingly over time. Okay, some of you are going, man, I, I'm so miserable at this. To the point where you're really going, am I really saved? Christian, don't forget that that sanctification, that that practice is a maturing thing. It, it's why you're not saved and then sent into the woods to be by yourself, but you're saved into the church to be under shepherds, to be under the teaching of the word, to be around accountable brothers and sisters, to be helped. Thankfully, those things are maturing. There's sanctification happening. And there are desires to please the Lord more and more. That's what I want here. I don't want to make it about me. I don't want to make it about how I feel. I don't want to make it about what I want. I don't want to make it about what I don't have. I want to make it about Christ, not me. I want to make it about him and his rule over me and his commands. His commands are not burdensome. Again, that reminds us of John's words in 1 John 5, 2-3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 
This isn't abstract. I've shared with you this before. Anything else that we don't do this with, it's hypocrisy. Say you love your spouse and then live in a consistent state of just absolute unfaithfulness to your marriage vows. Do you really love your spouse or is that just the thing you've learned to say? If you say you love your job and you never actually show up to work, you never actually work hard, do you really love your job? It is simply not true love or devotion if it's not backed up with action, with a conviction to do that. Paul emphasizes in Romans 2.13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Why? Because he who he makes pure, he gives a conviction in the Holy Spirit and the Word to pursue purity. Can't claim to know and love Jesus and disregard the fact that he is God, which means that you know that he's God and you love him and so you want to submit to him. You belong to him and so you embrace his authority over you. This means the pure, those saved by God, will love to be ruled by God and no longer want to rule themselves or be ruled by the world or be ruled by their family traditions or be ruled by the old, their old ways of thinking on the street or, or, or in the circles they once ran in or their own personal preferences. No, I'm ruled by him. Now, what does this mean for those who were around Titus who denied God by their works? They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable. They're disobedient. They're unfit for any good work. Unfit for any good work. When he says they're unfit, see this in the context of this opening portion of the letter as a contrast to those who are qualified to shepherd Christ's church, who are fit to do that. These who are trying to wield influence and lead and have, have a testimony that's false are unfit. They're unqualified. Paul is trying to help Titus be sure he's properly evaluating those around him who are trying to influence the church with deception and false teaching. They didn't have generations of the church doing this well before them. This was all so new. And so this was really critical that these things were being addressed for the sake of us today. Praise God. It was taught. Praise God. It was honored. And may it be the Lord's will that we continue to do it well. He's giving Titus a way to evaluate. And he shows how they're unfit and therefore need to be silenced and rebuked. This was good for those, in tit for those Titus was called to lead and protect the church. And it was good for the testimony of the true gospel in that day, as it is today. May we who truly belong to Christ look to fully and truly obey the Lord in all things and what his word is made clear that we truly work out our salvation with fear and trembling and we never forget that we, and, and see this to, this morning, are truly dependent on God. You didn't start purity without him. You don't grow in purity without him. 
It is him who's doing that work in and through you. You must abide in him, Christian. Paul says it well, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Praise God for his mighty work in all of us. Without which, where would we be? Amen? And that's just it. Ultimately, all of this points us back to what God chose to do. What God is doing inside of us and what that produces. Don't let your hope be in yourself. Don't let your hope be in the production of that other person. Your hope needs to be in God. Your prayers for God to work. You don't become impatient when God is not working in the timeline you think he should work. We're patient, we're prayerful, we're faithful. God would continue to sanctify us, us whom he's made pure in Christ. It is God who is worthy of all of our obedience and praise. Jesus is better, church. Let's praise him now. Stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for this space to spend time in, in these two verses in the conclusion of chapter one. And thank you for the, the hours and, and, and the time you've given me to pray and to prepare and to study and the blessing it's been to my own heart and soul and life and, and, and to share that now this morning. The, the preaching of the word is, is such a gift. It's, it's such a, a great ministry to all of us. May it be at work in us today. I'm excited to hear the testimony of your saints as we are maturing and growing, putting on these things, that our hearts and our minds would be drawn to you, not drawn to the longings and the ideas and the feelings of the flesh, but trusting you, walking by faith, obeying you, maturing, and what is righteous, being used by you for the sake of the gospel for others. Oh, not to stand over others like, man, I figured this out and you are so lame. But to be so joyfully humbled and privileged to wield the gospel in the presence of our children, of even unbelieving spouses, of family and coworkers that we would make the most of this treasure, this grace, this power of God that does the most magnificent thing to transform us from idolaters to worshipers of the one true God. Do that work today in this place and throughout the world. Be glorified in us. In Jesus' mighty, mighty Holy name we pray.